Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, March 11th, we're studying Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Jesus brings his string of three parables to a grand climax with one of the most beloved texts in all the Gospels, a parable that tells us about a father and his two sons. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sam Wurgau. Pastor Wurgau serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wurgau, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Yeah, thanks for having me. As we get started this morning, Pastor Wurgau, let's talk a little context. We're in the middle of a string of parables from Jesus. What should we know about what has been leading up to this moment that helps us with the parable we've got today? Right. I think we always got to keep in mind that, that there are these three that go together here. Uh, so you have... Um, uh, the first is the parable of the lost sheep, then the lost coin, and then the lost son. Uh, and um, all three of these are kind of prompted by that episode in the beginning of chapter 15 that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling and saying, this man receives sinners and, and eats with them. So that kind of sets uh, both the stage for why Jesus is telling these parables, but it also tells us the audience that Jesus is, to whom Jesus is speaking, uh, that this is actually directed at the, the Pharisees and the scribes to, to teach them, to catechize them into what, uh, what uh, God is all about in Christ Jesus, the actual compassion of God, what, what God's love, what God's grace is uh, actually about. And uh, I think it's important to keep that in mind because the grumbling, uh, when we see the grumbling throughout scriptures for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and then when you hear it in the Gospels, it's always a sign of grumbling comes kind of stems from unbelief, uh, mistrust in, in God and, and what he is about and what he is doing. Uh, and so this, these parables really do address that. And this one really does stand kind of, uh, you have the first two, this one stands they're all significant, but I think this one really does kind of uh, stand on its own as uh, as really this uh, more elaborate text, if you will, and where the the coin uh, or the sheep and the coin really are kind of concluding with this idea of the rejoicing and the joy. We certainly see that uh, of the lost being found. We certainly see that here with the parable of the lost son. But we also have this really important kind of conclusion that the father makes in that it's more than just the lost being found. It's actually uh, the dead being brought to life. So we'll hit on that as we kind of get towards the end of it, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, definitely keeping those other two parables in mind as we move into the lost son, it really does help to illuminate and uh, hold up this, uh, this key teaching about what the compassion and love of God is for lost and dead sinners. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this this parable is a, a climax to the two that we looked at yesterday, and it goes hand in hand with them and elaborates on the details and expands upon what we learned and, and adds a different, a new character into this parable. The, the second son is something that we haven't really encountered in either of the previous two parables that really, I mean, this is going to bring everything that Jesus has been saying into a climax and, and draw it all together, particularly for the audience to whom he's speaking, the Pharisees and the scribes. One, one question I have for you, Pastor Wergal, you've been calling it the parable of the lost son. Uh, most of the time, I think this parable is referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. And that, that's a question I always like to consider when it comes to parables. I forgot to ask Pastor Earl at the beginning yesterday, so I'm going to ask you at the beginning today. Uh, what what should we name it, and, and how does that influence the way that we read it? I think you're right. I think there's actually several things, we, several ways we can name it. I don't really know how... Uh, it really got to be known as the parable of the prodigal son. Of course, prodigal, I, d- I think sometimes we even use that term prodigal son and actually have no idea what prodigal actually means. Uh, we just kind of nod and go along with it. But it is the, the prodigal is the idea of this wastefulness. I mean, it's not a term we really use much uh, other than with the parable itself, uh, that the son goes out and he's described as prodigal because he he spends his money in uh, the, the money that's uh, given to him in, in this extravagant, wasteful living. And though that is definitely a problem, it's not the chief problem. I don't think it's the problem that Jesus really identifies with this. It's kind of uh, the fruits of, uh, of unbelief more than anything. So it's kind of the difference between uh, unbelief and the fruits of unbelief being uh, our sin. Uh, sin is bad. Sin, sin damns us, but it's that, uh, uh, false belief uh, that brings about the uh, uh, um, gr- other great uh, false belief that brings about the despair and the other great shame and vice that the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh would lead us to. So that being the case, the reason I call it the lost son, and I'm not the only one on this, uh, is is really it does. That's how he's described by the father. This this my son who was lost and now is is found, and that's what he holds in common with the other two parables. It's the lost, mm-hmm. it's the lost sheep, and it's the lost coins. Now it's the lost, it's the lost son. Also, though, I think this parable could very much be called uh, the compassionate father too. Uh, maybe it doesn't have quite the same ring to it, but we'll see here. He's really the chief character that we're uh, we're really focused in on. Yeah, yesterday when we were talking about the previous two parables, Pastor El suggested perhaps you could you could call the first one the parable of the searching shepherd, mm-hmm. or and then the parable of the rejoicing housewife. You know, again to put the emphasis on the the finder in those parables, and here compassionate father does put the emphasis on the father. And I think you know, and I I think I've in in sermons before in Bible class I've called it even the parable of the two lost sons mm-hmm. because I, I do think that you see in the older son, as we will encounter him, that he is lost as well. His is just a different type of lostness than the the younger first son. And so, yeah, a number of ways that we can think about this, the title of this parable, to catch some of the different emphases that are here for us. One more question by way of introduction. How would how does this parable structure? What, what's the structure of this parable as we go forward? Yeah, so it is a bit longer than the other parables. It's actually, I think, one of the longest parables that Jesus does does teach. So I kind of like, I've always, when I've taught it, has divided it into three parts, uh, kind of like the acts of a, of a play, right? So a three-part play. Uh, and then you kind of see with each one, you have uh, uh, kind of a different character focused and emphasized. Uh, it kind of sets it up kind of like a trilogy even too. Uh, and, and then you have um, uh, the kind of the climax happening in the middle, but also kind of the 
what you have with the third act, you have the focus really. So the first act kind of the focus is on the, the younger son uh, in his in his um, his sin, his separation and his dilemma. Uh, the second act is really focused on the compassion of the father with the son's return uh, and what the father does. And the third uh, uh, act would be kind of more focused on on the son uh, and then the father's relate or with the older son, I should say, in the father's relationship with him. So let's take a look at what Jesus says. We're going to read the whole parable all together to get the, the full emphasis of what Jesus says, the full blessing of this story that he tells. So this is Luke 15, beginning at verse 11. And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But here I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. That's our text for today. That's Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. So, Pastor Wargo, let's let's begin into this parable, the three acts that you laid out for us. Let's start with the first. Well, before we get to that, just the, notice there was a man who had two sons. Already you can see the intensity building from the previous two parables. You go from 100 sheep to 10 coins and now two sons. I mean, you can see how the intensity builds. Right. There's a father. He's got two sons. It starts with the younger. Take us into this first scene. Yes, exactly. And so we see this, uh, this younger son, and it kind of just sets off right from the start that the younger one has a demand. Uh, this is very, very uh, uh, interesting that the, that the younger would actually demand of the father uh, that he would 
tell the father what to do. Uh, it's not an asking, it's not a petition, it's not an entreating, it's, it's a demand, an imperative. And that imperative is actually the, to give the share of the property that's coming to him. And, and that's important to understand that this is an inheritance. And uh, when do you get an inheritance, money or property? Uh, normally that inheritance comes with the death uh, of the father. And so essentially, I mean, the, the younger son, son is wishing his father dead. Uh, and he is just simply demanding what he would have coming to him. Uh, bottom line, though, is is that he um, uh, cares about the property more than the more than the father, which is especially uh, heightened when he's going to be uh, receiving that property when it's divided, uh, essentially liquidating that property or that possessions to be able to then. Uh, journey into a far country, which is important that those two things go together. So first of all, you have uh, the separation from the father himself and just desiring the property, uh, the inheritance that he has coming to him. But it's followed up by this separation to uh, a far country. I think uh, we really do see that this is this is our key key problem here is that the son is lost because he he uh, separates himself from his father. And uh, I think this will make sense too when we get to the, the older son as well. He separates himself from that household, that community, and goes off to a foreign community, a far country. Uh, I was really, when I was just studying uh, this text again for this uh, program, I did kind of notice that um, this, this emphasis of kind of going to a foreign land and being joined to that which is foreign uh, would have uh, would really ring in the ears of the Pharisees and the scribes. This idea of uh, uh, with the idea of the emphasis on, on on Israel, on the people of Israel, on the ceremonial law and such, to go off and to be joined to uh, the the Gentiles, to be joined to that which is unclean, which we'll see here in a minute, uh, is really really significant. So. We, we want to make sure we emphasize this idea of the separation uh, from the father, from that community, and this going off uh, to to this far off land, which then, in that far off land, will result in the the where we get the term prodigal, the the um, the uh, reckless living uh, that the son then goes about with his uh, recklessly spending what he has and ending up in in a pig pen. Okay, so with the with the action of this younger son, right away, this is about as offensive a thing that a son could say to his father as imaginable. I'm, I'm trying to think of, of something more offensive that a child could say to his own father than, than Dad, I, I wish you were dead. I'd rather have your stuff than you. I mean, that that's essentially what he says to his, his father, which is just awful. I mean, talk about a breaking of the fourth commandment. Here, here it is. But, but maybe even in this, then, we start to, to get a glimpse of the strangeness or the compassion of this father. You know, I, I, I would imagine that a great majority of fathers, whose earthly fathers, whose earthly sons would say something like this, would say, no, I'm not going to give you my stuff right. ahead of time. You can get out of my house. Mm-hmm. But this dad does, which is just... That's that in and of itself is a bit strange, mm-hmm. 
and and maybe you know even a bit shameful that this father already and i think that's going to be escalated as we go forward in this parable but that already this father is willing to bear this son's rejection and even give to his son when he has rejected him already i think starts to show you a glimpse of of the compassion of this father i think so uh and, and it's important to kind of understand that he allows the son to do this uh, because he's a son and not a slave, right? Mm, a, a slave yeah. couldn't do something like that uh, to be, to be uh, basically wish the, the master dead and to, to leave. Uh, but the relationship of a son is different where the father's love and compassion can and, and is in this sense uh, rejected. Uh, and again, of course, this ties in very much to the understanding of, of um, uh, our Heavenly Father's love and compassion to us, that he does not force himself upon us. And we'll see his compassion extends, uh, uh, you know, and, and, is, and is very great. But we are not, uh, in that sense, um, uh, bound irrevocably to the Father uh, as if he, you know, um, uh, as if, I'm trying to get at as if we're slaves to, to him uh, and have, um, cause then that's, that's not love. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, God, God suffers himself to be rejected. Yeah, he, he allows him, he allows us to reject him, which is perhaps a bit of a mystery, but yeah, that, that is his love for us is that he, he suffers our rejection and, and he still shows himself to be compassionate and, and our loving father, even in that. The other thing that I really appreciate you bringing out with this first son is the fact that he separates himself from the father, you know, which is, has clearly already happened within his own mind, wishing him dead, but then to go about that physical separation. And that happens before the reckless living, I think does give us a a better understanding of what sin is in, in the biblical sense. We we tend to focus on the reckless nature of sin, and rightly so. I mean, we, we should see how sin is absolutely destructive to us, to our lives, and to the lives of the people around us. We should see that. But but to see the root cause as the separation that we have from the Father, I think, is, is just as significant. And again, particularly when we get to talking about the older son, yeah. who— you know, his way of life hasn't looked reckless, and yet he still got that separation from the father, as we will see. To, to see that, I think, is a pretty significant uh, a sit, pretty significant for us when it comes to our, our conception of sin and then the repentance that is needed for that. Right, exactly. With the older son, it is more a matter of his heart, right, um, uh, than actually being physically separated from the father, but both are significant. Because uh, with the younger son, I don't think it should surprise us at all that he ends up in the state that he's in. Uh, the father says it to the older son, right? Uh, uh, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. Uh, and that's very, very significant, that identity of being with the father, being a son and receiving from the father those good things as is proper for the office of the father to provide those things for his children. So when that relationship is cut off uh, and that distance is put and then the son goes off to do things on his own, it's not surprising uh, because the source of those good gifts that he had in the first place uh, were from the father himself. 
Well, so keep telling us then about this younger son. He's he's gotten the, the his dad's stuff. He's liquidated so that he can actually leave, which is where he already is. He's already separated from his dad. He begins to spend it, which, I mean, again, makes sense. He squanders it in reckless living. We're not told in any detail what that reckless living is entailing. I suppose that's left up to our imagination. How does how does it play out from there? Right, not very good. Uh, yeah, so we're not yeah, we're not told specifically. I mean, the, the older son's going to say it's with prostitutes. I think there's something to be said there, especially in relationship to this idea of uh, leaving his father, and, and we'll see here with the hired hand being joined to uh, something foreign, which I kind of want to pick up on maybe if we have some time. But but then there's a great famine that arises in that country, and he begins to be in need. Again, he, he, he can't make it on his own with what he had been given. Uh, and um, uh, left to himself, he begins to be in need. And so then he goes in 15, verse 15, he went out and, and hired himself out to, is how the English Standard Version has it, uh, translated, but I thought this was very, very fascinating. In, in verse fourteen or fifteen, uh, that word is actually more literally joins himself to, uh, and that is actually. As I was kind of trying to uh, toy with this just a little bit here, but this is the word uh, that Saint Paul uses as well in First uh, Corinthians six uh, when he talks about um, taking. Um, uh, uh, joining oneself to a prostitute, right? Uh, and, and the comparison there is the idea that, uh, so this is 1 Corinthians 6, 16 through 17. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And of course, the, the idea of fleeing sexual immorality, which is, of course, very, very true. But I think we also do see a sense of this with the, the parable of, of the lost son, because he has separated himself from his father, from his source of life, and now has to join himself to a foreigner, uh, to, to a, a foreign workman to be hired out. And of course, uh, what he's hired out to do is to actually be in the pig pens, and that would be the lowest. He hires himself out to a Gentile to work among unclean pigs. Now, remember, the audience is the Pharisees and the scribes. So I guess we'd rightly, if we're going to identify ourselves in this, that this is a lost son is a, a good uh, Jewish boy. Uh, so being in the pig pen, being hired out to a Gentile and in the pig pen and even desiring to eat what the pigs eat, and to eat pigs themselves was a you know uh, 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 a unclean thing. Just really shows the depravity, uh, the depth that the that the younger son uh, ends up in when he is uh, separated from his father and then joined to to this uh, hired workman. Uh, with that that image of being joined, not just hired himself to the one of the citizens, but to be joined to these foreigners, is that perhaps a, a picture then of say, idolatry? And I mean, I'm thinking of the way that the Old Testament often talks about idolatry in connection, you know, as adultery. And and here, perhaps, the, the picture of the younger son, then, is, is one who has forsaken the father, has run out of the father's good gifts, at this point, isn't going to go back to the father in any kind of repentance. And so, he's going to look for, for help from the outside, and he, he quickly finds that that's no good. I mean, is that kind of like a picture of, of our attempts at idolatry and trying to find help apart from the true God? Oh, I think so. I think exactly. That's kind of the deeper meaning here is that separation. Idolatry is wrong faith, right? It's it's being separated from our fear, love, and trust in God and placing that that trust in, into another 
uh, another thing, another, uh, and being joined to that to find uh, our way out and our, our, our solution to these, uh, to, to our problems or to our, uh, a place for our fear, our love and our trust. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I mean, the idea of being joined, obviously we, we understand from um, the Old Testament um, with this understanding of husbands being joined to their wives uh, and for the people of Israel, marriage and their relationship with um, God was very much a marriage. Uh, and so that the um, going to another God was uh, adultery. And of course, it's really significant in the New Testament. When we talk about that in terms of Ephesians 5, that this is a picture of the husband and wife or a picture of Christ in the church, that that communion, that joining together. And that's actually where we receive uh, the love of God. And to be separated from that is to separate us actually from the love and the compassion of God, which is the place that the son is in, the younger son is in, separated from his father in the pig pen, unable to receive any good gift, which is then when he has the re repentance or the coming to himself and realizes that um, he realizes the love of his father. He's not going to fully see the compassion of his father yet, but he realizes the love of his father. Uh, and then seeks to return to his father. Before we go too far to that to that turning point, just one more thought on on what you're saying here about the idea of being joined to it, and and combining it also with the reckless living, and then the whole thing of being separated from the father. All all of this reminds me of something that I always have found very striking within the small catechism, in the the sixth petition, "Lead us not into temptation." When Luther talks about the meaning. You know, he says, we pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into, and then he lists in this order, false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. And, and I, you know, again, in my own mind, when I think of temptation, the first types of temptations that I usually think about have to do with the great shame and vice, the outward actions, the reckless living. But again, you, you see how the devil works here and, and how this first son has fallen, that, that by this point, when he's at his, his low point, you know, he's he's falling into the despair and then into the the false belief that that his, you know, somehow he can he can save himself. He can do this apart from his father. And I mean that really is his his low point. And that's that's where then the the Lord in, in his grace will recall the love of the Father. That's where he's going to bring him back, and we're gonna see that turning point. But I want to pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke 15 with Pastor Sam Wergau this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, March 11th. We're studying Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32 with Pastor Sam Wergau. He serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. 
Pastor Wergal, prior to the break, we made it to the parable where the son is at the low point. The younger son is there wanting to eat with the pigs, the lowest of the lows. Verse 17 says he comes to himself. This is where there begins a turning point, not the fullness of the turn yet, but we start to see it. What happens when he comes to himself in verse 17? Right. So, and he says to himself, I mean, uh, it's just kind of this recollection and this memory or this remembrance of um, of, of his father's house uh, and of what uh, was provided there. And of course, He's speaking because he's hungry and he's in the pig pen. He's speaking actually of, uh, of the food that actually his, his hired servants um, would have enough to eat. And that's kind of, I think it's significant too, because we're going to kind of see too a, re- a comparison or a relationship here in the father's house between being a son and being a worker. Uh, I think you see that with the older son too. So uh, here, you know, this, this, this younger son has been working, but he's also been hungry uh, and he says, well, even those who were hired, uh, hired servants in my father's house had more than enough bread. Uh, and how much more would a son, right? I mean, you, you'd think that, right? How, how good did he actually have it as a son in this house? But here, separated from his father, he's perishing with hunger. But that idea of the hired servant's going to come up here because he's, he gets a plan. Uh, and he says, I'm going to arise. And, and the plan has, has, has three th- three parts to it, kind of. So you have the arising and going, right? So, so standing up and leaving that place, going to the father, and then saying to the father, uh, part two, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So the confession. And then uh, he goes on to say, uh, continuing from the confession, I should say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the third part, uh, treat me as one of your hired servants. Uh, And I think we'll see that's significant because we are dealing with repentance here with the son, for sure. He's coming to himself, and this is in a sense repentance, but we want to remember this, especially that third part, when we get to actually what happened. So this is the son's plan that he's going to do, that he's going to enact in order to be reconciled to his father. So again, he's going to leave where he's going. He's going to repent, turn uh, from that, go to his father, confess his sins. So that's important because he's not coming up with excuses for what he did. Uh, He is contrite. He is repentant. He's no longer worthy to be called. uh, He has sinned against heaven and before the father, and he is no longer worthy to be called a son. And then you have this satisfaction that he tries to offer then in his mind here to his to his father, treat me as one of your hired servants. He does not anticipate being a son, but he's anticipating being a lower level to be received as a as a servant, one who has to work, one who has to um, uh, uh, earn his bread through his through his uh, sweat and labor, but does not anticipate that he would be able to achieve or uh, reach that point of being being a son. Okay, so so he's he's come to a turning point, but he doesn't have the full conception of of what we would say is Christian repentance at this point or Christian confession. He's he's still got something that's missing, something that that's not quite right. He he thinks perhaps that he's going to earn something back from his father, whether he's it's just a misunderstanding of who his father is still, which seems likely, or maybe if he's trying to to save a little bit of his dignity by by doing some work. It, it's hard to know for sure. But he, he doesn't quite have it all together yet. There's still something missing. And I think this is where the parable then turns into that second act and 
this father that we've said, this guy's maybe a little bit unique giving his son all his stuff, even though he wished him dead. The compassion of this father becomes it becomes quite clear and comes into much greater focus as we move. So, so tell us what, what happens? The son starts home and then what do we learn about this father? Yeah, we're going to see. You're right. I mean, kind of point out the uniqueness of this father and kind of almost the, uh, the shock that, that what, what he's doing, especially in the context of which Jesus is, is speaking, uh, the cultural context, the, 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 the framework that he's speaking into. Yeah, we should be shocked that he would, in the first place, do this at the beginning, uh, divide his assets and uh, uh, let his son go. But so too do we get the shock here. Uh, not only does the father re- receive the son, but the son arises, he goes to his father, uh, verse 20, uh, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So the idea that the, the father actually takes this 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 uh, initiative or this this uh, the, his compassion drives him to actually embrace the son even while he's a long way off. Uh, the son doesn't deserve this, right? The son doesn't deserve to actually be back in the house at all. Uh, let alone, you know, so, so it's not like the son comes as a supplicant on his hands and knees to grovel before his father, but the father in compassion actually sees his son and runs off and embraces him and kisses him. I think we often glance over and I've always really just really appreciated the, the actions of the father here, because the first thing that you have actually is while he's a long way off, the father saw him, which does tell us that this isn't an accident, that the father is adamantly looking for his son. There you see the love of the father right there off the start, that the son's gone, but the son is not forgotten by the father. The father wants him back and the father is looking for him. I often use the analogy or the illustration. Um, uh, we, we have two dogs and uh, our dogs would, uh, of course, like all dogs do, they get out of the house uh, and they're not... They're not the most well-trained dogs, unfortunately. Uh, so they just kind of go, right? They're very much the lost son. Uh, they'll go do their thing and they'll go roll around in pig pens and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. Uh, and my kids are more the father than this than I am, actually, because once that dog's out that door, they are constantly thinking about that dog until that dog comes back. They are looking. And so I remember one time I was coming home from a call, uh, uh, pulling into my driveway, and my uh, oldest daughter was several years ago, so she was a little bit younger, is outside, and she is looking. And she has this look on her face of loss, uh, of, of, mm. of sorrow, and she's just looking out. And we live, of course, we're surrounded by fields, so she's just looking out through all the fields, trying to see her dog and waiting for her dog to come back. And I think, like I said, that whole th- just that one word that the father saw him really does show the compassion that the father is looking for this son and sees the son even when he's a far way off. And then from that, then you have the compassion. He felt compassion. Of course, this is a key word in Luke. This is the same word, I think, that the Good Samaritan. Uh, but you see it also mm-hmm. contributed to Jesus, which is very significant, that the, that, that the father... Uh, has compassion. And Jesus, when he sees the crowds, the sick, the suffering, the hungry, he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, it's uh, it's this um, uh, moving in the guts, a very earthly thing. Uh, and then he has compassion and he goes, runs, embraces, kisses him. 
Uh, and then we see with that, even with the embrace and the kissing, I think that's pretty significant. But we're going to also have uh, the commands that he's going to give, which really tie into this whole understanding of not only is the son back, but the son is going to be restored. But before we get that, we actually get uh, the son rehearsing or, or uh, playing out, I should say, to his father what he had rehearsed in his mind with one kind of key difference. Did you want to make any comments on anything before that, though? Well, just, I mean, the actions of the father and the, the various verbs, as you've been highlighting them for us, are, are so significant. You know, while he's still a long way off, the father sees. Yeah, he's he's been watching for him. And, you know, you think about the father, his place within the community, maybe his, his neighbors. I mean, I'm sure what, what has happened would have been a great source of gossip in town. And, and, you know, this father who gave his stuff to his son who wished him dead, now he's been outside of town on a regular basis looking for this lost son. People are, are, are wondering, what's, what's wrong with this guy? You know, why doesn't he just write him off? But he doesn't. This compassion that he has here is what's been going, inside, going on inside of him the whole time. And now he has this chance to do it visibly in front of him. I mean, what a, what a beautiful picture of the grace of God in, I mean, full stop. There's nothing that this son has done to earn this. He's done everything to earn the opposite. And yet this is the reception that he receives from his father. And and I've, I've heard it, it pointed out before that just the fact that he runs is something that would have been below the dignity of a man of his standing in all likelihood. You know, I mean, you don't, if you're the important guy, you don't run to the one who's less important. You let them come to you. Yeah. But this, this father's willing to run to his son who's given him the worst insult and wasted all his stuff. I mean, you talk about a picture of grace. There, there is a reason that this is one of the most beloved parables of Jesus. Yeah. And just those verbs, <laughs> before the father even gets to speak, which is going to be more grace, but just those verbs are full of that grace. So from there, the son does get to speak, but there's a noticeable difference in what he actually says compared to what he rehearsed. What's the difference? Why is it significant? Right. So the son, so this, so the father does all this stuff before the son can even utter a word. And now the son says, again, it's very, very mirrored to what he had rehearsed in the pig pen. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. There's your, your confession. Uh, he has a repentance. He's risen. He's gone to his father uh, and he's contrite. I've sinned against heaven and before you. No excuses. And the result of that, well, he deserves for his sins, no longer being worthy to be called a son. Now, some hint, I will, I will say, some manuscripts do include uh, the uh, treat me as one of your hired servants before as well. But uh, the, largely the received texts that we do have that make it into our translations just stop right there, though. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the father interrupts the son, I guess, more than anything. Uh, and even if we did have that where he would have said, treat me like one of your hired servants, the father doesn't. The father doesn't treat him like one of his hired servants. He doesn't ignore the sin, right? I think that's important. Um, uh, uh, and, and, and the fact that he's no longer worthy to be called a son, that confession is true. But the father receives him fully as his, as his son. We see that just in a beautiful kind of ceremony almost taking place here. Uh, this is where we also see the commands. We have the command of the son at the very beginning, uh, you know, uh, give me the inheritance, give to me. And now we have the father giving to the son actually what's what's significant. And that is uh, brings the best robe, puts it on him. So he's clothed uh, the ring on his hand, uh, shoes on his feet. You can think of the state of the son when he's coming. 
you know, having been in the pig pens, having been off in a far country, uh, he just has the rags, his his filth, his unrighteousness, and now he's being clothed now with the best robe, with with the righteousness, uh, uh, the reinstating as a son with the ring and the shoes on his feet, and then the feast. Because remember, I think this is significant. Let us eat and celebrate, because he's not only being restored to the Father. He's being restored to that household, that community, which again is going to speak to the 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 um, the younger or the older son here, and it's really speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes at the beginning of this parable. That not only is the son received to the father, but by virtue of that as well, he's received to the community, and they celebrate because of this. Right, and this, I mean, I think this is the where the parable really goes off the rails for the Pharisees that they probably are following pretty well so far. The, the part where the father, you know, gives the inheritance to his son ahead of time might've had them scratching their heads, but seeing the son, you know, lose it all in reckless living and be brought to this great humility and the desire to work it off as a slave, all of that is probably, okay, the Pharisees are nodding along it's when they start to see this compassion of the father that they're, I think, scratching their heads and it gets a little crazy for them. And I, I do love the the difference between what the son rehearses and what he actually says, because you, you use the word satisfaction earlier that the son intends to make satisfaction. And I don't think that was an accident that used that word. <laughs> yeah. You know, here, here we do see very clearly whether it's because the father interrupts his son or the son in seeing the, the compassion of his father already realizes there's no need you know the text i suppose isn't explicit whether he he's interrupted or not but in either case you know it is very plain from this text that as we confess in the catechism confession has two parts first that we confess our sins and second that we receive absolution and and that's it and and that's the the two parts we see here the son confesses and then the father gives absolution and what an amazing gift of absolution it is i mean i think you know hopefully this scene uh, reinforces or, or invites us to see a bigger picture when the the pastor pronounces absolution on us either on Sunday morning or, or privately that that this is what's happening is the the joy of the father is just overflowing to us and and his joy becomes ours as he receives us anew I mean what what a beautiful picture of God's grace now this is what we've seen <laughs> in the the previous two parables not in great as great a detail but this is what we've seen lost, found, joy. This parable, though, continues, and we start to hear about the second son, who we haven't heard anything else about him other than we know he's there. We, we know this father has two sons. Mm -hmm. But now the second son comes into view. He's the older one. Uh, what happens with the older son, Pastor Wargau? So the older son is, so we got the celebration going on. The older son's not in the household, which is significant, I think. Uh, he's out in the field. He's he's working, I think, maybe we can presume. Uh, but he comes near and he hears the celebration, the music and the dancing. Now, what's interesting here, too, is he doesn't go to the father. He calls one of the mm -hmm. servants and asks what these things are all about. And the servant gives him an accurate account. Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And this, of course, leads to the anger and significant refusal to go in. Right. So we said a big problem that we had with the younger son was his separation from the father and from the household, uh, from that community. Uh, and this, it, we see it's the same problem with the older son. 
that he is angry and he refuses to be reconciled, to be joined, uh, to go in and and um, and and take part in this celebration of this uh, dead son being alive, this lost son being found, to rejoice in uh, this sinner being reconciled. So he himself refuses to go in uh, because such is the way of of our sinful of our sinful nature. It's not only a matter of uh, rejecting God's gifts, separating ourselves from God, but it's also the anger uh, and self-righteousness that we find uh, il uh, illustrated here in the older son, where we see the compassion of God on sinners and we become angry and refuse to to take part in, in, in God's compassion that he has for others or to celebrate in that. But then... Here's that father again. The father yeah. goes out to him, just like he ran to meet the younger son. This older son refuses to go in, but the father comes out to him and entreats him because there's the compassion of the father that he not only desires the, that lost son to be found and that dead son to be made alive, but the son uh, who didn't go off as a prodigal to also be um, uh, reconciled uh, and to be part of that celebration, to be part of that household, to be, to be a son. Yeah, I mean the 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 older son here. You do see the cracks already before he ever speaks to his father. When he speaks to his father, which we'll talk about here in a second. I mean, you really see him start to to insult his father, his brother, the the whole family. But you see the cracks already that he he hears a party. And rather than going and joining the party, he's like, I don't know about this. I mean, I know in my house, if I if I start to eat something like a <laughs> dessert and one of my kids finds out, they all come running, you know, but this this son, he hears the party and he he hesitates. And when he finds out the full reason, he he refuses to go in. What a, what an insult to his father. But then, as you said, here's the compassionate father once again coming out to his son. He leaves his own party that he's thrown and he says, no, I want you in this party too, son. Please come join the party. You know, he entreats. We see that same willingness to, to suffer shame and in, in going out to this. But now the son speaks and, and we really get to see just how far he actually is separated from his dad, even though he's been there the whole time. In reality, he he's thought of himself as a servant. So take us into what the older son says to his dad. So he says, look, these many years I have served you, never disobeyed your command. Um, and he he complains, if you will, that he never even got a young goat, right, that he could celebrate with his friends. Uh, but and then he so he's holding himself up on this level. And then he points out the sins of that son devoured your property with prostitutes. He's come back and you killed the fattened calf for him. Uh, and, and I know you put that, I noticed that you had that because that's really significant. He never talks about himself as a son. Um, he doesn't say here, I, I've, I've been your son, but he says, I've served you. I've never disobeyed your commands for, for the older son. It's not been a matter of being uh, a son of the father, but it's been uh, his work and his obedience that has determined his place in that household. Now the works and the obedience are important, but what comes first and what the major problem with that lost son was, was, uh, not his reckless living before it was a matter of being separated from his father and and um, disowning his his sonship and then being reconciled and received as a son. So here you have the older son 
pointing out his obedience, his his um, serving, but never speaking of the son. But then the father says um, uh, to him and calls him son, right? Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. And we've kind of picked up on that already by virtue of being a son. And, and he says, what is true for you who have not gone and devoured my house with prostitutes or killed the fat and the cat for sure, uh, what is what is true for you is now true for this son who has been reconciled. It's fitting to celebrate, to be glad, rejoice in this. Your brother was dead and is alive, and he was lost and is found. Uh, so the the work of the father, the work of, of 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 the compassion of the father, extends to the older son as well, in demonstrating to the older son that this compassion that he has for the younger son, this love, is the same compassion and love he has for the older son. So yeah, again, words of, of grace and compassion from the father to his older son. And then that's where the parable ends. It's left. We don't know what, what happened to this older son. What, why doesn't Jesus tell us what happened? Right. I think it's, it's intentionally left open because remember who his audience is, right? His audience is, and we can see that clear comparison between the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling and this older son. So it's left open because then it's, it's kind of, you could imagine Jesus focusing his eyes on the Pharisees and the scribes to say, listen, I have come, uh, uh, it's the sick that need a physician, not the well. I've come to call the righteous and not sinners. And that's why I'm eating with them. That's why I'm receiving them. Uh, and, and, and that's the whole purpose. You also, Pharisees and scribes, are uh, children of Israel. You are sons uh, of God and all that is his is yours, uh, and it's fitting then also for us to rejoice in this reconciliation of these sinners coming to me, sinners coming to mm. Jesus. Yeah, the, the open-endedness of this parable, I think, is one of, I mean, so much of this parable is is there to love, but the open-endedness is, is part of that because this is Jesus essentially extending the invitation to the Pharisees, come into the party. I mean, you know, here here you guys are standing outside refusing to come in because you think that these people don't belong, but they've they were lost and they're found, they were dead and alive. You're you belong here too. Join in. Be be a son. Don't be a servant. Don't quit trying to earn your way. Quit trying to think that you've got it made because you're holier than them. You're not. Instead, be a son. Live by the grace of God. And I think, I mean, I, the open-endedness really, I think, highlights the grace of Jesus in coming for all. You know, like the Pharisees are mad at him because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus wants to eat with them too. He does on occasion, and he wants them to be a part of it. It's not just that Jesus is saying, Pharisees, you're wrong, but Jesus is extending the same invitation to the Pharisees as he is to the tax collectors and sinners. Come and find healing, and and you're only going to find it in me, Jesus says. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm glad you brought that kind of point up too, is, is the idea that the chief problem with the Pharisees and the scribes, why they're grumbling, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, grumbling is always a sign of unbelief. The idea here is that they don't understand who this Jesus actually is. It's all about Jesus' identity and who he has come to be, and not, you know, some kind of a new moral teacher or uh, uh, miracle worker or what have you, but as the one who has compassion and who has ultimately had that compassion by 
uh, dying for all those sinners, dying for the sins of, of the world so that the dead will be made alive. Uh, the idea of the dead, he was dead and is alive. Anytime we think of that, we need to understand we are dead in our trespasses and sin, but God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. We've been crucified with Christ in our baptism and raised with Christ uh, through our baptism as well. Uh, and so the idea here is that um, uh, that's what Christ has done and that's what we have from death to life, from being lost to be found by virtue of Christ, uh, all atoning work for us, which is where we see the ultimate compassion of God and the mercy of our Heavenly Father. Mm. Pastor Wargel, with about two and a half minutes left, help us to wrap this parable up. What what do we need to take away from this? What's the good news that is ours from this parable of the compassionate Father? Well, I liked how you brought up earlier the idea of... Uh, um, uh, always looking at this unconditional grace of God, especially when we talk about confession uh, and absolution. And I think especially during kind of Lenten season, this is always good to draw our attention to this, to take advantage of of the gifts that God gives, to understand our true state and uh, in, in, in the gift that God gives in giving us in giving us life through the absolution. So, so um, you know, confession has two far parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution, that is forgiveness from the pastor, as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. It, it, it does put what we do and then what God does, but what we do is simply to acknowledge, to confess, to say the same thing of what God says to us, which he works in our hearts through his law, uh, that we are dead, that we are lost sinners, uh, that deserve nothing good from God, just as the son rightly confesses, but then also to receive from the father uh, that very forgiveness of sins as a gift. We don't have to work to be a hired as a hired hand, we are fully restored as sons and daughters of, of our Heavenly Father by virtue of our of our baptism into Christ. And to receive that absolution then as a gift is to be brought from death to life again. Uh, and and to be to be found in Christ uh, who is our head and to be uh, uh, found um, as uh, to be seen as forgiven sinners. Uh, who receive this this compassion and love of God. Uh, the dead to alive too, I, I was going to kind of hit on this, but I think we kind of ran out of time. This really does reflect as well Ephesians 2. Uh, so I guess yeah. maybe giving some homework uh, to the listeners uh, to go ahead and, and kind of compare the Father's words at the end of this parable, uh, especially with uh, with the uh, uh, with Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which is a very familiar passage, by grace you have been saved through faith. Hmm. Yeah, and what, what a fitting summary to this parable. Pastor Sam Wergau is pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana, helping us today with Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Pastor Wergau, thanks for being our guest today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 15 or comments on any of the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.